Welcome to the Thanksgiving edition of the Nerd by Word podcast, where we give thanks for nerdy things and not having to sit at a dinner table with most of our extended family. The Byword starts now. Ladies and gentlemen, nerds, welcome to episode 171 of the Nerd Byword Podcast. And as we enter the holiday season, uh, we are uh, very glad that you decided to tune in to our little show uh, during Thanksgiving week. Uh, hopefully, we can give you a little distraction from all those relatives that will soon be sharing the dinner table with you that you really don't want to spend any time with. Uh, in this week's episode, Chris and I are going to discuss some of the things that we are particularly thankful for in nerd media and pop culture this year. Uh, but first, as always, it's time for... Yeah, so I'm not surprised that we're going to have to talk about this, Chris. Bring it. Okay, so the funny thing is about us recording like ahead of schedule is some of our news stories or some of our discussions are obsolete or at least require further context or maybe even an update by the time that they are released. So by the time you're hearing this, it's going to be a really interesting discussion. But Dave, Jonathan Hickman did the thing. As previously teased, we have, and I don't even know that this is an apples to apples comparison, a Peter B. Parker of sorts. Uh, But TLDR... Peter and MJ are married in this ultimate Spider-Man that he is going to be writing uh, with art by Marco Cicchetto. It was a big thing that broke uh, broke social media, the internet, when it was revealed. They just randomly dropped two little promotional covers, one one by Elizabeth Torque, one by longtime Spider-Man artist uh, Ryan Stegman, uh, with the solicit that says... uh, Meet Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson, Mr. and Mrs. Parker. They're one of pop culture's most iconic couples, and now readers will see them stronger than ever in the Ultimate Universe. To celebrate, Peter and MJ's romance will be featured in a series of picture-perfect variant covers by Elizabeth Torquay that will adorn the first four issues of Ultimate Spider-Man. Spidey superstar Ryan Stegman also spotlights the whole Parker family on a new promotional piece. Um, It's really, really fascinating. And then Hickman followed it up in this press release saying, quote, when we decided that we were going to do a book about an older Peter Parker becoming Spider-Man, we really wanted to lean into him starting his superhero life from a very different place than what's traditionally expected. Peter and MJ being married is one of many decisions we made that underline this being a quite a different kind of Spider-Man story, end quote. Um, So yeah, we have also in Stegman, uh, the Torquay cover is a real romantic, uh, romantic uh, cover with Peter and MJ. Uh, Peter has the push-up bra for all men, a full-grown beard. Um, and then on the Stegman cover, we have two as yet, uh, at the time of recording, yet unnamed children. Um, so really interesting to see how this develops. And now, um, with added context... At the time of recording, we have both read Ultimate Universe number one. 
And so that kind of helps color in the lines of what we can expect a little bit about how the maker kept all of these people from becoming heroes. And now at much later stages in their lives, Peter especially uh, is going to become a hero. So this is going to be a very different take on the character. So I don't even know that the, the Peter B Parker is a fair comparison. If we're looking at the uh, spider verse film franchise version of the character. So I'm, I'm, incredibly intrigued to see where this goes and i'm i'm hyped for the ultimate universe going forward as a whole yeah so uh there's there's a lot to unpack here so let's start sort of with with the base setup of all of this first um so i read ultimate invasion and overall it was i'd I guess is what I'm trying to it was, say it, I, call, it, I i thought of it as a placeholder like yeah it, it did it didn't very like much a placeholder yeah, it didn't like set my world on fire or anything, and I was okay with with it. But I didn't really feel like there was like a very clear protagonist in all this. There wasn't a very clear through line. I felt, you know, let I was kind of, I don't know, like it was it was like not starting this new ultimate line, I guess, with a big bang or something. And so, uh, you know, I was like cautiously optimistic that it would be readable, but I didn't find, you know, Ultimate Invasion all that interesting. Now, that being said, I think that reading Ultimate Universe number one completely recontextualized Ultimate Invasion for me and made it significantly better. I don't think you can judge Ultimate Invasion without ultimate universe number one i think that i think that issue is basically the fifth part of the mini and and this is where all the threads come together and you start getting a sense actually for what the plan is with this ultimate universe and that's when i finally got hooked on this because i really like the notion you know which was hinted at in ultimate invasion that the maker basically jumped around and and took away the opportunities for a lot of these heroes to arise, right? Like, you know, for example, making sure that the spider doesn't bite Peter Parker and then, you know, locking the spider away. Um, Those sorts of things then lend themselves to a very different vibe for a lot of these characters. Not just that they become heroes later in their personal timelines, which is what we're going to see with Peter, but, you know, there's there's opportunities here for maybe completely different characters to get some of these powers, for example, right? So I think we're we're in a very interesting baseline spot uh, with this new Ultimate Universe, and that it actually has the opportunity to tell very very different kinds of stories. Uh, that you know, really, that's I think what they need to do here, anyways, because the original Ultimate Universe was basically. Uh, sort of a greatest hits compilation, right? I mean, that's what it basically was. It was retelling classic stories in a modern context. And I don't think you can go to that well again. So what they're doing instead here is they're creating a situation where they can tell the kind of stories that you really can't tell in mainline Marvel continuity for whatever reason. And I think if they really run with that, uh, we're in for a very interesting ride. I love obvious for obvious reasons that you know we have the the Parker family as sort of the baseline of the new you know Spider-Man series, and of course that broke the internet because people, a lot of fans, have been clamoring for a return of the marriage to Mary Jane in the regular continuity. So this might be you know a bone for for that particular uh, you know branch of the fandom. Um, but I'm also, you know, still cautious <laughs> because, you know, we're talking about storytelling here that, uh, you know, thrives on, on drama and complications and the like. 
And and the first place that my mind went to is exactly what you said, is that this is not a Peter B. Parker situation. Um, you know, he's going to get bitten as a, a you know, middle-aged man. You know, is he is he going to let Mary Jane in on that secret? What is this going to do to his family situation? Are we going to see the kind of story where basically he becomes a superhero and it basically tears his family apart? You know, like, is that is that the way that they're going to try to go? Because to me... Um, one of the things that made, uh, you know, that particular marriage uh, as a storytelling element so special in like runs, for example, by Straczynski um, was, you know, that the secret was out in the open, that it was for the most part a really supportive marriage. Once you got out of the 90s, you know, chain smoking Mary Jane, always complaining that Peter is Spider-Man, even though she knew when he when she got married that that's what he did, you know. Um, once you got away from that, it became a very, uh, a very supporting um mutually supporting situation i think and i I think it was sort of a a a great marriage in in comics to sort of hold up as a as a good relationship you know that wasn't you know toxic because of the superhero element thrown in so i I think i have a little bit of concern that that might be the the route that they're taking there you know peter's life would be perfect if he hadn't been bitten by the spider now we reintroduced a spider bite and now his life's gonna go to heck yet again you know i hope that they don't quite do that there obviously needs to be conflict and drama and any good storytelling but just like creating this baseline that a lot of people have been clamoring to see in the comics again and then immediately nuking it um would would be sad <laughs> but is in the realm of the possible because we're talking about comic book storytelling here um but i'm cautiously optimistic that this ultimate universe is going to give us stories that we would not uh be able to get in the mainline uh you know marvel continuity and that alone makes me extremely excited for what they did here yeah and i'm gonna i'm gonna color outside the lines here and and jam in an extra nerd commendation i really enjoyed ultimate universe number one um, and, and I think I enjoyed ultimate invasion, um, a little more than you did maybe because I kind of binge read a lot of it. I'd, I'd read like the first issue or two and then kind of fell off. Um, and then I came back and just crushed through the, the remaining issues. And so I, I, I appreciated like the, the, the meta contextual type of stuff, like the, the social, critiques if you will of like these elitist controlling like the global political powers it's especially prescient given the state of global politics right now so like those elements i thought were fascinating um and then you leaned right into that and it's it's funny because with all the multiversal stuff being like all the rage for so many different things nowadays it's like how can you kind of stand out and make something unique? And I think they truly have achieved that with this. I think this is something unique and something that we haven't really seen before where we almost have like a collector type situation with the maker where he has like all these totems locked up somewhere. Um, and then we have really unique kind of spins on characters. We have a, a, a Reed Richards that is like Dr. Doom, you know, at least in costume. Um, we have, I, I, I never, I would never would have thought that I would be rooting for a character with the name Tony Stark, but here we are like he he's a teenage kid. And so it's almost like an inverse of like a, a Peter Parker situation where like he's iron lad and he's the young character with a strong moral compass that has been sabotaged by the global media as 
this terrorist and awful person. And so how is he going to rebound from that? You have my guy Thor as like this unjust prison, uh, imprisoned person. Uh, you have Sif on the team. I'm always up for Lady Sif being on a main roster. Like I'm, I'm really kind of interested to see where we go from here on the entire Ultimate Universe and and where these how these stories are going to be vastly different from from mainline comics. Yeah, I'm feeling it, man. I really am. Uh, Ultimate Universe number one really sold me on this. I, I love all the Thor stuff that w- that was going on there. Um, I like this take on Iron Man as sort of this 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 younger kid, you know. Um, I, I think there's definitely something here. Um, th- yeah, Doctor Doom Reed Richards is fascinating too. It's just the the whole thing. It, you know, I think we're calling him Doctor Doom Reed Richards, but it almost makes me feel more like uh, uh, you you will appreciate this reference. It almost makes me feel more like a, a man in the Iron Mask situation, right? Indeed. Where the make Indeed. where the maker doesn't want to see the face of 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 himself and you know somebody that he hates, which is you know heroic Reed Richards. I think that's. Oh, you, know, you get me. That that touched my heart. You get me. Yeah. So <laughs> I I think there's definitely something here. I'm I'm excited for this man. All right. Now for your news story, Dave. Um, very very somber news. Yes, sir. Uh, so uh, Richard Mole, uh, p- uh, actor, voice actor, passed away at age eighty recently. And uh, I I think this is definitely newsworthy for a nerd podcast because he. Um, you know, was a uh, actor for Harvey Dent, uh, Two Face in the uh, '90s Batman the Animated Series, um, and was responsible for some of the absolute best voice acting on there, which is actually saying something considering we're, we're dealing with you know towering greats like you know Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill. But um, I'm particularly thinking of the Two Face Two Parter, where you know he had to voice act Harvey Dent's descent into madness and the emergence of the Two Face uh, split personality and all that. And there is some really heart-wrenching voice acting going on here. Um, probably his biggest claim to fame uh, was on the uh, sitcom Night Court that ran in the late 80s and early 90s. He was a series regular on there playing sort of a dim-witted but good-hearted bailiff and was very, very funny in the role. Um, and then after that sort of transitioned into a lot of voice acting stuff, did some stuff uh, on, on Justice League Unlimited, did some stuff Batman Animated Series, Freakazoid, and the like. Um, and so as as far as the nerd world is concerned, if you, you know, like myself, grew up in that era, sort of that, that golden age of Warner animation, you definitely have heard Richard Mole's voice. Um, so, you know, we lost another piece of our, of our childhoods here with a fantastic actor and voice actor uh, who was responsible for some very memorable characters. Yeah, and it's it's deeply sad. And I mean, we lost Arlene Sorkin. Um, we, you know, we lost Kevin Conroy last year. It's um, it's it's becoming a really um, almost like a, a wake up call, like for our generation, um, and also like a time to sit back and appreciate the contributions that these artists have made on our lives. You know, we we've really been been spoiled by the voice actors and i think even even with the advent of social media and kind of circling some of these clips of people like phil lamar like keith david like richard mole arlene sorkin like these are these are giants in the industry and we still do not give them enough credit for for the work that they do and the impact that they have on our childhoods and and our lives at large so um certainly pass our condolences on to to Richard Mole's family and just again like we really we really had it good growing up man 
Yeah, we did. Alrighty, folks, that's it for Nerd News. On that sombering note, we're going to move on. Uh, after a quick break, we are going to be back with uh, our sort of uh, things that we are grateful for this year in the nerd world and in popular uh, media. So stick around. around. We'll be right back. All right, folks, there you have it. We are back. It is time for... And for this week's big talk, I uh, I have to say, <laughs> I, I kind of went ahead and rolled with uh, my good buddy Chris's suggestion here of doing a Thanksgiving-themed episode, even though I have very little um, um, connection to Thanksgiving, having grown up in, in Europe and moving over here. Thanksgiving has always struck me as the most uncomfortable of holidays. Um but I like the spirit of being grateful for things. So we each picked three things over the past year that we are particularly grateful for in popular culture and in nerd media. And I'm going to throw it to Chris for the first thing that he is particularly grateful for this year. Chris, what have you got? Yeah, my mission with this episode was to turn some of that German attitude into gratitude. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> the, the first thing that I, I'm just incredibly thankful for is the work of, of Al Ewing. Um, particularly with X-Men Red, but like with, with you know, his, his other work as well. I think it's really, it's a really hard time to be an X-Men fan right now. We went from at the, being at the top of the world with the advent of Krakoa and reimagining so many different things of what superhero comics can be. And now we have made a hard right turn uh, back into the regression of persecution, of genocide, of slaughter, um, and uh, it's 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 really tough. Um, but in spite of that, X Men Red remains, in my opinion, the strongest book in the line, far and away, um, and is still doing some incredible storytelling in spite of all of the editorial overreach what have you of, of telling this wonderful story of characters that we love of telling beautiful stories about Magneto, about storm, about sunspot, about um, complicated issues of, of governance of world building. And so I truly appreciate his contributions. Um, what he's doing with immortal Thor. I'm telling you what, it's a great time. I said this on social media, but it's a great time to be a Thor fan. Uh, between Ultimate Universe and like this very different interpretation of the character, um, between Immortal Thor, um, you have Jed McKay's Avengers run, which we both have have given flowers for, rightfully so. So um, I, I just really, really appreciate his work, his 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 writing. Um, even I think he has a book called Avengers Incorporated. I don't even know what that is, but I'm going to read it. So he has become like one of those writers that I'll just read whatever they write, no matter the characters. I don't typically go for an Avengers book, um, but Avengers Incorporated, I'm there. I'm, I'm reading it. Um, and Jed McKay's right there as well uh, with what he's done with Moon Knight, uh, with Black Cat. I'm getting ready to read a Doctor Strange book. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm very appreciative of, of some of these writers that are really cooking right now. Now Ewing is doing Immortal Thor, right? Correct. 
Yeah, there is nothing wrong with that book, my friend. So I will I will echo your gratitude. Now, a lot of the X-Men stuff, you know, I'm kind of X-Men agnostic. Um, but, but, you know, Immortal Hulk uh, was an absolute barn burner. And Immortal Thor so far has been absolutely fantastic as well. So I feel like I need to really expand outward and read more Al Ewing because um, what I have read uh, from the pen of Ewing himself has been absolutely fantastic. Yeah, Ultimates, Ultimates 2, all that stuff, uh, US Avengers, Secret Avengers, all of it is is immaculate. And and so I can't, I've nerd-commended it before, but I, I can't nerd-commend it enough. But speaking of writers that we adore, Dave, you've got one for us as well. Yeah, so I, I, can't, I can't help but be extremely grateful uh, for the recent resurgence of Mark Wade over at DC. Um you know, love him or hate him, he's a big—he's a big sort of idea kind of guy, um, and he also has a, a sort of an enduring love for a very specific kind of image, I guess, of of DC, a very specific era of DC, and calling back to that right now in sort of the this this new era that they're kind of going for at DC has been incredibly well executed. Almost everything coming from the pen of Mark Wade over at DC is just really hitting it. World's Finest in particular, sort of a, you know, a, a good chunk of it has been sort of a flashback book. And you're dealing with, you know, the friendship between Batman and Superman is such a, a refreshing return to a relationship between those two based on mutual respect rather than animosity, getting away from sort of the Batman v Superman image of the characters and back to like a, a sort of classic friendship between the two has been such a breath of fresh air. Um, and then, you know, spinning out of that, we got a fantastic take on sort of the first group of, of Teen Titans and seeing, you know, the, the younger incarnation of Dick Grayson th- through sort of a new lens. I think one of my all-time favorite comic moments, it's just, it's joined like top my top 10 favorite comic moments, um, even though it's so recent, is when he did um, Robin and Supergirl trying to go on a first date together and how how Dick Grayson absolutely bombs the date. You know, it's just so funny, awkward throughout and so well written. Uh, I get a huge kick out of that whole issue, you know, and then, you know, you know, Wade has just been doing really interesting things, too, with like, um, you know, trying to, to, you know, mix up things a little bit by by giving an in-story opportunity for people to tweak like characters' powers or take you know come uh, from a new angle at certain characters. You know, Wade has just been a really, really strong presence at DC over the last year. And I think DC has been exactly what I think it needs to be. DC has always been, to me at least, a very a very bright place based on hope, even, you know, in the darkness of a Batman story, the notion of hope is so crucial to, to DC storytelling. And I think that's really shining through lately again, you know, with Wade and uh, Wade's involvement. Um, and so I'm just very, very pleased that Wade has become such a, um, a vocal voice at DC comics again. Um, even though I don't agree with all of his takes, I know he uh, recently spoke about how he, prefers the you know the kents having passed away uh, as opposed to them still being around and i think that's just a a horrible take um but 
uh, even though I can disagree with, you know, Wade on certain particulars like that, I really just appreciate how he executes a story in the DC universe. And I'm just very, very glad that he's such a loud voice right now at DC. Yeah, I, you know, my exposure to DC actual comics are, is minimal. Um, I don't read a whole lot. I feel like a lot of it um, feels like stepping into a country where I don't speak the native tongue. Um, it can it can be kind of hard to acclimate to everything going on. But Mark Wade is one of those people that it's almost like he's a tour guide that that can translate for me. And uh, so his 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 work on DC when I have read it, like Super, Superman Birthright, for example, is is very new reader friendly for me. Um, and so World's Finest has been one of those things that's always been on my to read list. I just haven't gotten around to it yet, but um, it's definitely at the top of my list. All right. So, Chris, what is the second thing that you have been grateful for this past year? Like we never stop saying wonderful things about it since we started this podcast and i don't think we ever will I, I think xbox game pass ultimate is one of the best value subscription services of any type uh you know i've talked till the cows come home about how much i love starfield um and one of the positive byproducts of the rampant capitalism that is microsoft currently is that consumers like myself are able to play these highly sought after games at no additional cost uh, day one. And I mean, like you can't, can't argue with that. Um, it just it, it, the cool thing about it is, is you can, there's just like, there's no shortage of things to try. And so you can download something, give it a shot. And if you don't like it, you just uninstall it. And there's no commitment to it. I, I, I cannot vent enough about buying a game, instantly hating it, and then you're just out of 60 bucks. Um, And so, you know, with with digital sales and stuff like that, that's been one way to kind of avoid that issue. But even better here is like I can download something at no additional cost, give it a try. If I like it, perfect. If I don't like it, just uninstall it. And there's no extended commitment necessary to it. So... I, I will always praise Xbox Game Pass Ultimate as one of those things where, especially with things like Starfield, things like, um, you know, games that that a lot of people are rushing to pay full price for. Like, that's not the case with Game Pass. So um, I'm always thankful for it. I think there's a lot of things to be grateful for on the Xbox side of things. Anyways, uh, I think Game Pass definitely leads the way. But I can just tell you, I think, <clears throat> and maybe that is just me, but as somebody who plays on, you know, consoles from, from you know, multiple companies, I mean, I play, you know, Nintendo Switch and I play Xbox and I play PlayStation. I think just the the ecosystem of Xbox is probably the most polished. You know, I think it's the most polished online play. And I know there's probably going to be some some you know PlayStation fanboys that'll disagree, um, but I I come from this you know not with not any dog really in the race just because my console wars are long over you know it was Nintendo and 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 Sega you know that that's that's how old I am so that's a console war to me what's going on right now doesn't feel like a console war to me. Um, so I come I come from this from a fairly you know unbiased perspective. I just like the ecosystem best. And it also feels to me like out of the box things just generally work 
better oftentimes. Uh, for example, when I attempted to stream um, my, my PlayStation 4 to um, my Steam Deck so I can just, you know, remote play on it. Um, it, it does not work very well. It's, it's, it continues to be pretty laggy and I have a lot of trouble trying to make that work. Um, flip side then, I, I set that up for my Xbox and it's, it's pretty much flawless. Like I have, I have zero issues with it at all. So um, I think just the, the ecosystem generally at Xbox, it's just there's a, there's a solid baseline there that is very um, functional for the end user. Um, and I like that a lot. And, and I think uh, Game Pass is a part of that. It's just it's it's very, very good for the consumer. You know, I'm always reminded of uh, the old days of demo discs. Did you ever get a hold of any of those back in the day, Chris? Yeah, I you know I know they did a bunch for for PS One, but even before that, you got you go out and get like a magazine like PC Gamer or something, and it would have like a it have like a demo disc attached to it, and you pop that in your PC, and you get to play a little bit of a game before you actually have to go buy it. I mean, I don't want to imagine how many landfills were filled with all those demo discs when all was said said and done. But there is something again to be said for a consumer to have a demo. So even if you don't have something like Game Pass, at the very least as a as a publisher, if you really believe in your game, you should you should provide a free demo of some kind so people can try the game and make the decision whether they want to purchase it or not. Um and so I I agree that that's one of the strengths of X, uh, Xbox Game Pass. I have tried a lot of games that and loved a lot of games that I probably would have not you know paid to go out and buy um, until I tried them you know and then I was able to play them and and enjoy them and you know there there are plenty of things where I'd like you know if this wasn't on Game Pass you know if I would have had a chance to try it I would have went on out and bought this game I love this thing you know there's a lot of really cool things on Game Pass so. I'll wholeheartedly echo what you're saying. I really, really enjoy Game Pass as well. So your next uh, thing that you're thankful for is proof positive that we come from very different worlds. All right. So I'm I'm going to go ahead and, and start with something that we have previously discussed, and then I'm going to kind of, uh, you know, tangent off of it, all right? So I was thinking about you specifically a little while ago and I even texted you this uh, because you were you know you had started this Buffy rewatch and I had not really considered what that meant watching Buffy on streaming until I remembered that Buffy the vampire slayer had received a quote unquote remaster <laughs> and I say this uh in, in quotes because it's not very good. And they released a show um, in widescreen with not a whole lot of care being taken in the actual remastering. And there are a metric ton of problems with this remaster that completely break um, the um, original intent of the creators of the show, uh, particularly with stuff like um, color grading in particular. You know, they went back to the uh, original ungraded, um, you know, recordings, and then they did not apply the color grading. So you get a whole lot of problems there. The, the show was filmed in widescreen, but never intended to actually be seen in widescreen. So you have stuff like shots where there's crew members and, and lighting rigs visible in the corners. There's problems with scenes taking place at night, but they were filmed during daytime, and then they put like a blue, a sort of bluish color filter over it to make it look more dark, right? And a lot of that stuff did not get did not get translated over um, into uh, into the remaster. 
So when I was thinking about the impact that Buffy the Vampire Slayer had on me the first time I watched it, a lot of it was that there was nothing on TV at the time that had that kind of atmosphere, like the atmosphere that show created, especially in the early seasons when they were going for a very strong horror vibe, you know, all those scenes with the master and his lair and everything, right? Um, there was nothing like that on TV. Nothing had that kind of vibe. Nothing. And and now when you look at the remasters, it doesn't have that vibe anymore. You know, like there's so many mistakes in the remaster that it ruins a lot of really important moments, I think. Um, I'll give you an example. There is a, there is a scene at the end of season five uh, of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, the the whole thing kind of takes place, you know, in the dark, as, as so much does, and then Buffy reaches a very important decision, um, and you know, you are not nearly there, so I'm not going to spoil what that is. But as she reaches that decision, uh, in that moment of clarity, the sun comes up, and the lighting of the whole scene changes. Right? It's 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 pure symbolic, you know, filmmaking, and because of the remaster not doing the color grading properly that entire vibe is lost because the whole scene feels like it's too bright. So there is never that moment where the lighting kind of changes to, to, to symbolize the internal change in, in the character. And so that's a long way for me to say that one of the things I'm extremely grateful for is the continued, continued existence of physical media. Because if I want to see you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the way I, I love and remember it without all of these mistakes, the way it originally broadcast, I have my DVDs down in the basement and lo and behold, I will, you know, get those out in order to watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer as opposed to watching them on, on streaming because I want something that is akin to the original experience rather than something that had all of these good things about it sort of filed away um, in, in a very sloppy sort of process. Um, and that just reminds me that there is still something to this day to be said for physical media. You know, I absolutely adore the fact that when we got a, a you know, new game for the Super Nintendo, we didn't have to worry about a day one, you know, eight gigabyte patch to fix the game because they, you know, released it unfinished, right? Um, so I, I still have a deep appreciation for physical media. And that that appreciation was recently reawakened even more i guess or expanded upon when i rediscovered vinyl um for my music um like everybody else on on planet earth i use a lot of streaming music these days um because there's a huge you know element of convenience to that i have a you know music subscription specifically to uh to apple music on my iphone so wherever i go i have my music my playlists you know um and and i love the convenience but because of bandwidth and, and all of that, I would say that qualitatively streaming music leaves a lot to be desired. And when you, you know, take the exact same music and pop it, you know, on vinyl on a, a, a traditional record player, there is a richness and a, a texture and a detail in in the quality of the music that is completely different and, and is, is something that I still you know, deeply appreciate. I grew up in a household with a lot of vinyl because of, you know, my dad had a big vinyl collection. And there is a, there's a warmth and a richness in the tone of music coming from a vinyl record that I don't see duplicated in digital music. And so even though a lot of physical media is on the way out, 
Um, I am glad that I have here what I have. I have a deep appreciation for being able to revisit, you know, a show pre crappy remaster like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I'm I'm glad that I can slap on a vinyl record uh, and and enjoy that that rich sound that you don't get from streaming music. And I think there is still a place for physical media, even though you know digital is by far more convenient. I think there's still a place for physical media out there. Yeah, I I wish I could follow that path. It, it, the convenience is just too much for me. Uh, the, I I just don't have the desire to 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 go that route. I I think the convenience just outweighs it for me. I do have some vinyls. That part I do have, but I don't even think I have something to play DVDs or Blu-rays. Um, also. That Buffy, that Buffy watch through for the first time. Oof, it's a real, real start and stop. I haven't even gone through an entire episode now that I've started up again. <laughs> really struggling. It is, it is of its time, Chris. Very much. So. Um, but yeah, you know. So I understand the convenience part, and I'm not rejecting digital. You know, like I, I play, you know, games on my Steam Deck. That's all digital, and I have my digital music subscription. But I think, like I said, there's something to be said for having having a physical media as a supplement to that. Still, especially on stuff like Buffy, where you know the remaster is, is such a mess. Or if we, you know, look at the HBO Max. Oh, pardon me, the Max of it all, where you had all this stuff streaming, and now you know this has been taking all that stuff off. Um, you know, I, I think we just have to accept that streaming is not going to be that all access pass that we thought it would be, you know, stuff does not stay streaming. And if you, if you want to see it at some point later, you know, right now, physical is probably still the best bet as far as just having something. Do we even need to talk about Star Wars at this case? You know, like all, all the special edition changes that were made. If you want to see Star Wars the way it originally was released, you know, the only way you can do that is basically from a VHS copy or a laser disc, <laughs> a laser disc. Um, it's you know, so I think that preservation-wise, you know, con- considering you know digital enhancements and changes and redoing special effects and all that has become so common. Um, if if you are a purist for something, physical media is just where it's at. I don't know. I kind of like the McClunky of it all. <laughs> I hate McClunky. I still I still am personally <laughs> offended by the music change at the end of Return of the Jedi. I ride for Nubyub. I, I just I love the original track. I, I love that celebration music and that new one they put on there is just does not vibe with me at all. It it just does not vibe with me. <laughs> Alright, Chris, what is the third thing that you are uh, grateful for? We I think we are truly in the golden age of cover art and variant covers and and all of that and you know i'm not a real big purchaser of physical comics but just the this this niche corner of comic book the art form that has opened its way for artists to really just cook and just do their absolute best work and to not be beholden to any kind of constraints really. So I'm, I'm talking about like the, the sway art, the, the Jenny Frizens, the um, Lucas Veronix, like everybody like Peach Momoko, like everybody just having complete artistic liberty to create to their heart's content. And we 
as fans of the medium are the beneficiaries to just see some of the most beautiful things um, to save for our profile pictures, to save for our lock screens, our cover photos. Um, I, I, I can't think of a better time to be a fan of the comic book medium when it comes to just pure art. Um, and so I'm, I'm incredibly thankful for all of the, the cover art that's coming out. Um, for books like I'm not even I don't even know that I'm going to read, but just to view that comic book art on my timeline is just the best. You know, I will say that I wish they would put a lot more of those variant covers on posters <laughs> because yes. I would probably put like a, a couple of poster frames in my in my home office and then just like randomly change them out when I see one of those totally sweet variant covers. Like the, the most recent She-Hulk run, for example, had some of the absolutely most stunning covers I have that's seen our, that's in our my girl life. Jen, our girl Jen Bartel, another one of them. It's so absolutely stunning art. I would have had like a, a rotating She-Hulk frame just for those She-Hulk covers. So it's like every every month a different poster. Like yeah, the 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 I would say that I'm glad that for the most part we've gotten away from the 90s gimmicks of like, you know, foil, reflective, and and, and all that jazz. Um, because right now what they're really doing well is a lot of these variant covers just represent incredible artwork. And I think that's just where it at is is that's where it's at when you're dealing with comic books, is you just want to see really incredible artwork, right? So, you know, no no gimmicks straight up. This is just really cool art. That's the sweet spot for comic book covers. And I think that you're right. They're really knocking it out of the park, uh, out of the park in recent in the last few years. I'm really really enjoying what they're doing with cover art. All right, Dave. I have no idea where you're headed with this last one. I'm glad you didn't Google it. Yeah, yeah. I, I really don't know what to say other than I'm. This this is maybe a little off the beaten path for for us on this pod because most of the time we're talking about movies and 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 the like. But you know, I kind of dropped the vinyl thing already, so I'm going to talk about music for a second. Um, so earlier this year, um, a, a band that I listened to a lot when I was in college, uh, Fallout Boy, released a uh, a new CD for the first time, a new record for the first time in five years, um, and it's called "So Much for Stardust." And I think the 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 album kind of represents sort of a synthesis of a lot of musical styles that I've dabbled with over the years and has kind of um, achieved sort of quintessence status as being like the, the, the quintessential Fallout Boy album and that it touches sort of on all eras and on all vibes that they have had over the years. This is their eighth studio album. And um, I came to Fallout Boy very early on um with their their second album uh which was released i believe in 2005 from under the cork tree and it became in a lot of ways um that that was the soundtrack of my of my sophomore year in college like i had to drive uh daily for about an hour to campus because i was saving money not you know living on campus i was still living at home and so i drove an hour one way i spent two hours in the car every day going to college classes and more often than not, uh, in my sophomore year, um, it was it was you know from under the cork tree that was that was playing in my car uh, over and over and over again, just just nonstop. And then when they released a follow up to that, their, their third uh, album, uh, Infinity on High, um, that that was the the next mainstay. So at that point, I was just basically when I was driving, I was rotating between between those two albums, um, and so it's you know. 
this is going to sound weird for such a straight-laced guy uh, as myself to say, but it was basically a a emo pop punk band that essentially connected uh, with me on on the deepest level of of any band or musical act that I've probably ever listened to. Um, I connected with the lyrics, the music. It, it I felt spoken to by this music. And I continued following the band, you know, on and off after I graduated. But so much for Stardust was like the key to me uh, to unlocking an appreciation for the entirety of the of their musical work. Like every little element of what they've created is somehow, you know, is represented on, on this record. And I know among Fall Out Boy fans, there's always like the pre-hiatus, post-hiatus debate, you know, like, you know, we, what version of the band is better before they took their big break or after. And I don't I don't care for that debate at all. You know, uh, I just really like their, their continued evolution. And I've, you know, listening to so much for Stardust has caused me to branch out into like seeking out, you know, initially unreleased demos, um, seeking out uh you know side projects um seeking out you know some of the absolute weirdest uh stuff uh like for example uh they they did an you know adaptation of uh, a uh, a disney song from the jungle book for a disney compilation and uh, even that slaps like um you know um it's it's absolutely fascinating to me how i still you know, as a guy getting ready to turn 40, am absolutely connected to this this band, both lyrically and musically. Um, and so I'm so glad that this new this new album came along so much for Stardust to to reawaken that appreciation uh, for for Fallout Boy and me. As weird as that sounds. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I think um music is one of those things that I don't know if we can consider it this nerdy, but it's one of the greatest driving forces of my life. But it's interesting that I've never really keyed in on one artist or band. Like I have favorites, but I can't say that I have that level of commitment to something like what you just detailed. Um, I have so many different influences, so many different genres that I ascribe to. Like I grew up um, with 90s country because my grandfather was a small time recording artist in Nashville. I back and forth all the time. He had a small little show in the area that I grew up in. And so that played a heavy influence on my life. And I still listen to some aspects of country, um, you know, um, and, you know, hip hop and R and B are really probably the, the two strongest genres that I grew up with. Um, rock and roll was kind of, it, it ebbed and flowed in my life. Um, probably the strongest ones that I connected to were the ones that were really truly unique. I know the Killers were probably the probably the most influential band for me in high school. I think Hot Fuss was one of those albums where yes, yeah, I, I have that one. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good good album. Like Mr. Brightside rightfully gets like all of the flowers, but somebody told me is is my go to. Like that's the one that like shook me. Um, I know that this is a polarizing one, but the white stripes were huge for me. You know, I, I, I didn't really find them 
per se until college. So I found them late. I kind of had like a, a renaissance my senior year of high school and early college years. And so Icky Thump came out and really shook the table for me. And then I punted back and found like some of their older stuff. I remember, of course, like Seven Nation Army, like that one of the most iconic guitar riffs. Like you can you can hear it at like a, a sporting event or a stadium or any kind of event. Like you can hear doom, 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 like one of the the all timers. And um, you know, a lot of people throw shade at Meg White for being very simplistic on drums, but when you have that juxtaposed with such a talent like Jack White on the guitar, like I I love like that boiled down to the basics. And I love what he went on to do with the Rancatours and and stuff like that. Um, but I think, so I've always been like a general consumer of all forms. And when I say I listen to everything, I mean everything. Um, but I think like the most influential artist for me of the past decade or so has been Hosier. Um, when Take Me to Church came out, it absolutely shook me to my core. My sister had recently come out as bisexual. I was still learning um and for context it, it shows a gay couple that is uh, that is uh, persecuted and and abused so in in the music video and so like I, I was kind of grappling with a lot of the things of my re- very religious upbringing and being forced to take a long hard look for the beliefs that i had held for a long time um and then that entire self-titled album of Hosier, like from work song, um, is is really powerful. Like there's something just raw and pure about a singer-songwriter like that, like he is, that um just really connects with me. So if I had to pick one artist, it's probably Hosier that I follow to that level that I have a vinyl. So um, Tyler Childers recently um, with the stand that he's taken um, is another one that, that I really connect with and I really vibe with. Um, but yeah, there's, there's nothing better than finding an artist or finding an album in particular that you can listen through on no skips whatsoever. Um, unfortunately, the one for me in college <laughs> was Kanye West graduation. And so I'm, I'm very, I'm very cut and dry when it comes to separating art from artists. I'm like, yeah, this was really influential for me. It was very different. It was very quirky. It was very weird. But the things that that Kanye's done in recent years, I can't, I can't support that anymore. So, yeah. But yeah, music is one of those things, man. Is it is you know, and you're always looking for connection, right? You're like you're looking, you're looking for for something that speaks to you on a visceral level in your music, you know. And it's just fascinating to me that this band in particular has managed to to continue to stay so connected to me, even though, you know, the band members have matured and changed and I've matured and changed. But for some reason, like their music still continues to speak to me. And and I think that, that that's absolutely fascinating. Um, so I'm just I'm, I'm very, very grateful for for, uh, you know, so much for Stardust. I think it's it's the exact it's the exact album that I needed at exactly the right time. I guess that's the best way to put it. Well, a couple more that I want to throw in here while we're on topic is, is something like rage against the machine. And as of the time we're recording Tom Morello 
was the only person from Rage to show up to their Hall of Fame induction. And the speech that he gave, I, I strongly encourage you to look it up if you haven't seen it before. Um, that was a barn burner of a speech, yeah. Really, really important. Um, just really impactful. And it's funny because the day before that speech, I had introduced my kids. We were driving around the car and I'm like, listen to this. And we played Killing in the Name. And that's something, you know, my youngest are six and seven. And that's really something strong. But I, I really believe in taking a stand for your beliefs and what you believe to be right. And not just, you know, that old Captain America quote of like, when the whole world tells me and you truly believe in something, you plant your foot like the tree of justice and say, no, you move because this is the right thing to do. And the whole world can be telling you that you're wrong. But if you believe in something, you take a stand for what you know to be right and you stand for your truth and you stand for justice. And that's something incredibly powerful. And the other one that I wanted to to speak on is Dave Grohl, like find a better person like in the world of rock and roll and listening to like I, I saw a podcast interview where he was talking about the life and legacy of Kurt Cobain. Um, and he was talking about listening to Nevermind. And it's been now 30 years. And he says, you know, they recorded those in different parts. Like he would record the drums, the guitarist would come and record those in the studio. And so like they didn't know what Kurt was going to do lyrically speaking. And he was talking about just the genius of of Kurt Cobain and, and what he was able to do. And, and he talks about how he gets a different experience listening to something that was 30 years later, uh, that was 30 years in the past. And now 30 years later, he has a different experience than when he heard it for the first time then. And for someone that involved in that to, to share something, I, I think that's, I think that's something that I hear like a song from my past, I think about where I was, I'm transported back to that time. And, and I think, you know, with something like fallout boy, even, even with, uh, and I, and I'm a fan of fallout boy, but, but hearing you share your kind of anecdotes makes me the best types of music can transport you back quite like that. Yeah, absolutely, man. All right, there you have it. Those are the things we're grateful for. We'd love to hear what you're grateful for. So find us on social media. You can find us at Nerd by Word or individually at that Nerd Dave and at that Nerd Chris. And we'd love to hear what you are grateful for uh, this holiday season. Uh, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to come back with something else we're grateful for our Nerd Commendations. Stick around. Alrighty, folks, we're back, and it is time for the segment where we recommend new nerdy content to you, things that we have found and enjoyed and we think you will enjoy too. It is called... All right, Chris, uh, you are definitely on the gaming uh, side of things today. What have you got for our listeners? Listen, sometimes we have our particulars. Sometimes we are consistent. You're going to go always with the quirky stuff. You're going to always go with something with a horror tinge. And when it comes to Assassin's Creed, I'm probably going to love it. And Mirage, the latest installment, is, of course, no exception to that. Really interesting. It's developed by Ubisoft Bordeaux, which is like a a subsidiary or like a... 
yeah, I guess a subsidiary of Ubisoft and it was published by Ubisoft. Um, and they went in a very different direction. So the original plan for this um, was to be like a DLC installment of Valhalla. Um, but they chose to make it like a standalone title because it features the main protagonist, Basim Ibn Ishak, who is a character in Valhalla. But now we're punting back to his original origin story. Um, and gameplay-wise, the fascinating thing about this is it threads a lot of the newer stuff that was inter- introduced in this, for lack of a better term, this reboot, the soft reboot of the franchise with Origins, with Odyssey, with Valhalla. But it's also like a return to the basics of what made you know, like Assassin's Creed 2 or even the original, so special. And so it's kind of a a back to the basics, a lot of fans have said. It's focusing much more on stealth, much more on like a single lane storytelling perspective. And well, there are elements of it that make me sad. I get it. So they are not planning any big name DLC like they were with the previous ones. You know, with Origins, with Odyssey, with Valhalla, they each had at least two big DLC expansions. And that is not going to be the case here. I think um, Ubisoft and Assassin's Creed franchises going in very different directions with the, the, I think, the red and the jade of what they're planning on doing. They're almost, they, they have Ubisoft Plus that is like it's its own subscription service, which I'm I'm not a part of, but... Um, like just narratively speaking, I love, I'm such an old history nerd, ancient history. So this is set in ninth century Baghdad during the Islamic golden age, uh, particularly the anarchy at Samara. But what I love about this is it's like taking almost like, um, like a graduate course in a very specific like time of history. Um, and so like the codex, for example, you will travel around and you'll see these little sparkling crystal things and it's something that you have to collect. Um, and the sole purpose of grabbing those little codex things is to teach you a lesson about Islamic history during this period about the, the genie. And what that truly means. And, you know, we've westernized it a lot with with Disney and popular culture. Um, But like what the the marketplace would look like in in Baghdad at that time. And it will give you like a menu to pop up. And it has like ninth century art that shows you stuff like that. And so like the history nerd in me is is absolutely having, you know, my appetite whetted here. and then the storyline is really fantastic. The order of the ancients, this secretive, you know, order that is is trying to control things behind the scenes, um, and it's just it's it's the best of the the AC franchise is back, um, and uh, there's 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 just so much to love about this game. Um, I'm I'm deeply saddened that I'm almost done with it. But I'm I'm still going to try to explore some more when I'm done with the main storyline. Yeah, it sounds really interesting, man. I like the Assassin's Creed games. I think it's interesting that this one seems to harken back more to the original Assassin's Creed games and less of the, you know, RPG heavy stuff that they've been doing in the last few games. Um, 
I'm wondering how that's being received. Uh, I think there's a really uh, strong sort of division uh, in the Assassin's Creed franchise fandom as far as which direction is better, I guess, or more playable or more enjoyable. But I like both incarnations, so I'm definitely game for this one. Yeah, I like both. I don't really have a strong preference one or the other. Like, sometimes... It just suits whatever mood you're in. I'm I'm in for the big open world stuff, like particularly um, Valhalla was. But then, like, if you're telling me a tight and good story like you are with this, I'm game for that as well. Now, I, I, I'm here for it. That's all I can tell you. I'm, I'm going to try this one out. <laughs> all right. Speaking of staying true to our character, Dave, what do you have for us this week in Nerd Commendations? It's no secret that I absolutely adore the Golden Age characters over at DC, uh, the original Flash, Jay Garrick, the original Green Lantern, Alan Scott, and so on and so forth, the Justice Society stuff. Uh, These are characters that I've always loved um, and uh, have followed through various incarnations and, uh, you know, always hoping that they do more with them. And lo and behold, spinning out of the uh, current uh, JSA book that is going on, uh, they're actually having a series of solo minis. And I've dipped my foot now into each of them. And I have to say, I like them. Like each one of them I like. Uh, so there are three uh, mini series uh, that are focused on individual JSA members. We got Alan Scott, The Green Lantern by Tim Sheridan and Cian Tormi. Jay Garrick, The Flash by Jeremy Adams with art by Diego Orle. Oh my goodness, I am so bad at this. Olortegui? Uh, and Wesley Dodds the Sandman by Rob Venditti with uh, Riley Rosmo. Now, the cool thing about each of these books is that they are not um, just like resting on the classic incarnations of these characters, but they're also trying to do some new stuff with these characters. Uh, for example, uh, the, the Jay Garrick mini... Uh, postulates uh, that Jay Garrick actually had a daughter that uh, functioned at his side as his sidekick for a little while, and then a villain kidnapped her and erased the memory of her, and she's been sort of suspended in time. And now that he's an old man, suddenly she's back, and he has to deal with you know this daughter that he had forgotten about, and him being an old man and now trying to be a dad. Um, and that's a really interesting you know route to take with the character. Uh, Alan Scott Green Lantern is going back to his origin and is playing a little bit around with some unknown, unseen stuff. Um, And that's been really interesting. So I think all three of these minis are really, really strong so far. I've read the first uh, issue of each. I think the art is strong. The writing is strong. I think the characters are certainly in character, while at the same time revealing new layers to these characters that have been around forever, right? So I absolutely adore what DC is doing and shining a new spotlight on these characters. Um, and and kind of bringing them to to modern audiences and and still being able to find new angles for uh, the storytelling with those characters. So I'm a, I'm a big big fan of of these minis so far, and if they continue on the way they have been going, I think these are going to be some real classic stories in the annals of these characters, Chris. Yeah, I'm definitely intrigued by this. Um, the art especially is stunning in all three cases. I mean, I've, I've made my feelings on speedsters quite clear, but I think, I think I might have to check this one out. The one I'm most intrigued by is the Sandman and that whole vibe completely though. 
I think I think actually, believe it or not, if you if you give it a chance, uh, I found out of the three probably Alan Scott Green Lantern the most enjoyable that first issue. It hints at so many interesting things. Um, it's a great setup issue. Um, and it does a really good job because it spends some time with his origin and who he was before he became the Green Lantern and all that. And I, and I think you're going to find something that you're really going to appreciate here. Alrighty, folks. Well, there you have it. That's it for a new episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you just heard, please be sure to get on your favorite podcasting platform, subscribe so you never miss another episode, and drop us a rating and review. We can You can find us uh, where all... Uh, any podcasts are available on all major podcasting platforms, including our very own spiffy website, nerdbyword.com. And just hit up hit us up on social media at nerdbyword on all platforms or individually that nerd David, that nerd Chris. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd By Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.